electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Growing up in elementary school, I used to, there was a golf course behind our house, and I used to go find the golf, ball, golf balls in the creeks and sell them to the, um, the golfers. So Nice. How much did you make? 25 cents a golf ball. Today, it's a $4 billion publicly traded company. It's synonymous with streaming video, going head-to-head with Apple, Amazon, Google, and lately Netflix in the cord-cutting era. But Roku's been around for more than 15 years. That means it's older than YouTube. Anthony Wood, the founder and CEO, hasn't followed a straight line to get Roku where it is. He's gone through a few different business models. He got some help from Netflix. Now he's defying the odds and talking about Roku's latest strategic moves. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit and subscribe. I met Anthony Wood at Roku's New York office in Midtown Manhattan. We talked about his journey as an entrepreneur, from selling used golf balls as a kid to his big move to Silicon Valley. He also gives his take on what's next in this golden age of streaming TV. Here's Anthony Wood. I think a lot of people probably don't realize that Roku itself has been around for like more than 15 years. Yep, 2002, I think, started Roku. And Roku means six in Japanese. It's my sixth company. Uh, is that why it's called Roku? That is. That's the secret meaning to the word, to the what, name Roku. What's seven in Japanese? I don't know. Okay, so you're not planning another company. I don't know you're Japanese, gonna be, actually. You're going to be here a while. <laughs> um, what was it in 2002? Because it, it wasn't broadband streaming because we didn't have broadband. Right. So, you know, I, uh, I started Roku to, to build, um, you know, just with the general idea that the Internet was going to become you know, bigger for media consumption, media distribution, that dig- digital products would be a big market. And so we, st- we uh, started to build sort of digital media internet connected products just generally. Our first product was uh, in 2002 was high def television. So when high def TVs first came out, there was not a lot of high def content. So we built a high def photo and we called it live art player. So you could put art on your brand new high def TV. And that did, that did well in that market. Uh, then we did streaming audio players uh, I mean, digital signage players, um, which were very successful, and we ended up spinning that out eventually into a, a, another company called BrightSign. Uh, and then we did the first Netflix player in 2008, and that, that's, that became um, you know, a great product, and that's what we built our business on since 2008. How did the connection with Netflix come about? Um, well, I'd, I'd known Reed for a while, and I was always trying to convince him to... Um, to let Roku make a, a Netflix streaming player. This was back when they were just doing DVDs by mail. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was with mixed success. Uh, and then I ended up, um, actually, it's a long story, but the short version is I ended up. We help, got a little time. We got time. So <laughs> I decided to, uh, they started looking for a VP of internet, uh, internet TV, and I was running Roku. And I decided, well, if they're not going to let Roku make a streaming player, I'll help them do it. And so I worked out this deal 
with Reed where I would, where I worked at Netflix as their VP of Internet TV, and I st and I still ran Roku as well. Okay. So Roku was a, was a non, you know had been around for a few years, was still selling our streaming audio players and our digital signage players, which were doing great, and then I kind of had this side job at Netflix where I where I built their uh, internet TV team, which at that time, which consisted primarily of building a, a hardware box they were going to call the Netflix player. Um, but I also started the licensing business where we would license the Roku service to companies like Xbox, um, and that and that went that went they both both projects went really well. Um, but then ultimately, Reed decided, well, since the licensing is going well, we don't need to be in building this hardware player. And so then he decided, well, we're gonna not, we're not going to do that. So why don't why don't we spin that out? And you've got this company Roku. So why don't we why don't we spin it out into Roku and you can finish it up and ship it as a separate company? And so, so you you basically incubated Roku's future business model inside Netflix right. while you were still running Roku. Yep. So that's right. That's that's basically what happened. Did Reed and and Netflix end up with a significant stake in Roku as part of that, or kind of how to? How'd all that work out? Uh, well, what we, they, they spun that team that I built to build a Netflix player out into Roku, and then they invested some money into Roku, and they got some shares as part of that. Uh, but then I think later on, Netflix sold those shares to one of our venture capitalists. So they haven't owned any equity in Roku for a long time. Let's talk about Roku today and how it's different from all the various options that people have for how to stream content. I mean, there's Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, various mm -hmm. Chrome sticks and dongles and yeah. boxes. There are internet-connected TVs from Samsung, etc. And then there are Roku's whole, a whole family of ways to connect, including Roku TVs and dongles from Roku, uh, etc. How do you, and I didn't even mention Amazon, um, but there are lots of others. How do you define Roku's difference between all of these other ways to get content. Yeah, so Roku is the leading streaming platform in the US by, by a wide margin. We stream a lot more hours than any of our competitors. And the way I think about Roku is we are a platform uh, for distributing content in the modern internet world. Uh, and we distribute our platform a bunch of different ways. So you think about what's our business model. Well, the first part is we have to distribute our platform, build scale of our platform. And we've got uh, you know about 20 million active accounts at this point, and in Q1 that grew 47% year over year. And then we monetize that, that platform. So how do, we, how do we build scale of that platform? Uh, we, we sell players, that's how we got in, into the business. Uh, you know, we shipped the first Netflix streaming player, we shipped the first app store for television, um, you know, we shipped the first streaming stick. Um, and we've been competing with companies for a long time, these other companies for a long time. I mean, Apple had Apple TV before we shipped the first Netflix player, for example, although back then it had a hard drive in it. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and uh, Android actually licensed Android TV to TV companies before we started licensing the Roku OS to TV companies, although today we have almost the entire market for licensed OSs. So, so why? So why is why, that? So why is that? That's because we've built a platform for streaming television, whereas our competitors have all built platforms uh, for mobile and imported them to TV. So we've built, Roku actually has the only operating system purpose-built for television. And that's, and that's what happens. I mean, if you, if you set, take a step back and just think big picture, you know, when new computing platforms emerge, what, like what is the pattern? Well, the pattern has never changed. The pattern is that a new software platform 
comes out and wins on new hardware platforms. So if you go back, for example, to PCs, well, before PCs, there were mainframes operating, and there were operating systems for mainframes. Well, when PCs became their own, sort of an, its own computing platform, mainframe operating systems didn't make that transition. They didn't become the operating system for PCs. Windows became the operating system for a PC. And when phones became their own computing platform, Windows didn't make that transition. You know, you're probably, I'm guessing you're not running Windows on your phone. Um, you know, Android, purpose-built for, for phones, and iOS, also purpose-built for phones, won that, that, that transition. And then if you look at smart TVs, which are becoming computing, our computing platforms, getting their own licensed operating system, those phone OSs are, have almost no market share, whereas Roku has a lot of market share because we've built a purpose-built platform for TV. So then people ask, okay, well, what does that mean, purpose-built for TV? Well, it means things like TVs are a brutally cost-competitive business. So we've built a software platform that's designed to give, give great performance on very low-cost hardware. And, that, uh, and that's critical. Like that's, and that's why we, for example, have a $29 Roku streaming player, the lowest price point, yet still actually make a positive gross margin where our competitors all subsidized to come within striking distance. So you make money on that $29 device because you designed and built the software for TV, it's not bloated and and you know so much that you have to build more expensive hardware around it to get it to run. Exactly, that's right. And then also that's and then other examples are the ad model. Like ads are super important in the TV business. It's, you know it's a lot of the revenue for TV content companies comes from ads. So we build ads, targeted ads, the ability to to do ads into the Roku ad framework, which is sort of a first class citizen of our operating system, and, and there's other examples, but, we, uh, but all of them are around the fact that we built software for TVs first. What's the next big shift, maybe cultural, maybe technological, that's going to change the way we experience what today we're calling TV, you know, video streaming entertainment? Um, well, I think there's a lot of things changing as TV moves to streaming. You know, the, the main, I think the big thing that's changed is competition. You know, before, before streaming, uh, there was not a, a lot of competition in TV. I mean, there was some competition, but, you know, cable companies only had a, few, you know, a couple hundred channels. Only certain big networks had access to those channels. Streaming allows any company to publish content to a, t to a television. You know, that's why anyone can make a streaming channel for Roku. You don't have to be you know, CBS or try a streaming channel. So right. competition is, is driving the innovation in streaming and that's resulting in things like more content, lower cost, more choice for consumers. I think some of the changes we're gonna to start to see, you know, one of the reasons Roku has been successful is there's over 6,000 different apps on Roku where we call them streaming channels. Yeah. But that's a hard way to find content in so many apps. Um, you know, I remember when uh, someone at Apple once said the future of TV is apps. Well, actually, the future of TV is not apps because people are people are tired of looking in 6,000 apps for content. So, I think one of the next evolutions in TV is how do we make it easier for consumers to find content when there's so many different publishers of content. I do it now. Well, we have something called the Roku Channel, <laughs> which is uh, it's just a free ad-supported movies and TV shows. Uh, but we just also added live news, and we're going to keep adding more and more content. It's the sandbox where we bring content uh, and make into a content-first user interface, make recommendations, use our data platform, our machine learning platform to sort of find, find content and recommend it to customers. And so we think things like the Roku channel will become 
the way content publishers end up publishing on platforms like and is Roku. It, is it like an actual channel? Or oh, is it's it right here. Yeah, Look at that. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an actual channel on Roku. Um, but as it gets bigger and bigger and has more and more content, you can imagine someday it might become the Roku home screen. Um, it's also, we're also going to uh, publish it off Roku as well. Like we announced that the Roku channel will be on Samsung TVs this summer as well. Oh. Well, that's interesting. Why, why would you do that? I mean, because you're trying to sell Roku. Why give Samsung the Roku channel? Well, we're, I think of Roku as a large-scale publishing platform. If you're a content owner and you want to publish that content and monetize it, we can do that for you. That's what we do. We, we distribute content. Uh, and a preferred way to do that is to be the operating system of your TV. There are some companies like Samsung that are probably not going to license our operating system. So taking the best of content on Roku, putting it in a channel, and putting on, on those kinds of platforms is another way for our, our content publishers to get broader distribution for their content. And then does Samsung pay you to carry the Roku channel? Do you become sort of like an HBO, a Showtime, you know, a, a premium content offering that they're paying for and you're kind of getting that revenue stream and maybe a share of the advertising, et cetera, et cetera? Well, we haven't announced our business relationship with Samsung, but that would be a great time. That would now <laughs> might not be the best time. Uh, but what what I do think I do think the trend is that we're going to see over time more and more aggregation to these big destination apps, and Netflix obviously is like you know the original destination app. Um, but I think that's what the Roku channel is as well. Uh, and we're starting out from a different place, whereas you know an app like uh, you know traditional OTT apps are subscription services. Actually, um, consumers of Streaming also go to streaming because they want better value, right? They go because there's great content and it's a better experience, but they also want better value. They want to pay less. And free ad-supported content is very popular on Roku, but it's an underserved market. There's not a good place to go to get a single place to go to get an aggregated experience with lots of great free content. So that's where we're starting out with the Roku channel, is trying to build a great aggregated experience of free content. Um, but we think that uh, over time, you know, it'll be a it'll be a big destination app like some of these other big destination apps as well. You grew up in Texas. Yes. Well, I grew up in lots of places. You grew up in lots of places, including Texas. Yeah. Okay. Army brat. No, Usually, my, when people say they grew up in lots of places, yeah, they no, one that's, military. Uh, my dad just I don't know traveled a lot. I was born in the UK. I grew up, I moved to Atlanta when I was young, and then Texas. I I did spend a long time in Texas. Wow. So you have. No accent or all the accents? Can, can, can you just do them all, or how does that work? UK, I'm Atlanta, yeah, and Texas. Um, uh, yeah, it's one of my big disappointments in life. I didn't end up with a cool accent. I think it's because <laughs> I lived in Texas and then went home to my English parents, and so it all kind of came out in the wash. What were you interested in as a kid? Uh, I, you know, I, was, I loved uh, science fiction and um, uh, computers. Uh, you know, I, I lived in Holland for a while, for two years, uh, and I went to the American School of The Hague in eighth grade, and they had a computer there, and that's where I, I learned to program. Um, I, uh, I, was also, I was also very entrepreneurial. I like to, I like to do things to make money. So, like what? Well, like, for example, in Georgia, when I was, like, growing up in elementary school, I used to, there was a golf course behind our house, and I used to go find the golf, ball, golf balls in the creeks and sell them to the, um, the golfers, so. Nice. How much did you make? Twenty-five cents a golf ball. How I, many? Uh, I mean, how how, how bad were the golfers? Yeah, uh, <laughs> depending on how bad they are, you might have made a lot of money. I don't remember how much money I spent it all on candy bars. So. <laughs> um, and then you also went to college in Texas. Yep. By then, 
where was the personal computing revolution? Had you determined that this was going to be probably a part of your life at that point? Uh, well, I went to Texas A&M and I grew up in Houston. And uh, I, I um, so back then it was the Commodore 64. You know, it was a super popular computer, uh, and I had one. Uh, and I, yeah, I knew I, li I knew I liked programming computers. I used to write games and try and sell them. You know, I sold some to some magazines. There, back then, there were computer magazines that would publish games. Yeah. Uh, what kind of games did you write? I wrote like a lunar lander uh, game, and I wrote some ad adventures and different kinds of stuff. I uh, and then in college, I started. Um, uh, I, there was a computer called the, the Commodore Amiga, which mm -hmm. people may not remember, but it was the, kind of the first desktop video computer. And um, so I built, I built products for the Commodore Amiga. Our most successful was something called Studio 16, which was an, a hardware and software for editing audio for video. So it was nonlinear audio for video post-production. That did, that did pretty well. Where did the fascination with media come from? Because it sounds like even then, Right, audio yeah. and video. You were thinking along those lines. Yeah, uh, I think it, I just found it technically interesting that you could record, like you could take, you know, this, now everything's digital, but back then it was new. So the idea you could take video or audio and record it on a computer and edit it was pretty, just novel and interesting. That's the main reason. But you weren't like a film nerd or no, no, no. Um, what's the first company you started? Uh, well, in, in high school, I had a company called AW Software. We sold one copy of a of a of a game. That was the first company. I, if, if you count that as a company, I don't know. <laughs> it, it had one. We sold one copy. So all right. Uh, well, uh, and in college, I started this company doing Amiga Amiga stuff. That was probably my first real company. Then after that, because I know we're going to get to six eventually. We're going to count. So um, <laughs> well, <clears throat> so that company that I started in college. Uh, I got a, it, was doing, it was doing pretty well for a college student. I mean, it wasn't doing, you know, like... Um, not like Michael Dell. Not like Michael well, Dell, exactly. Also he, in Texas. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he did a lot better, uh, for sure. Uh, but, um, yeah, so, it, but it got up to like 14 employees, and I was making, you know, decent money for a college student. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't, but I stopped going to class, or I would sign up for classes optimistically, and then I wouldn't go. So I was uh, getting bad grades, and... Um, they sent me a letter saying they were going to kick me out of college. So I decided, well, I'd probably regret that. So I basically shut that down, went back to school full-time for a year, got my grades up, graduated, and then I loaded up my U-Haul and moved to um, Silicon Valley. I moved to Los Gatos, and I, I kind of restarted that company uh, doing a new line of products. You ever look back and say, maybe that was the wrong calculation? I mean, because now the college dropout thing, it seems kind of cool. I mean, Steve Jobs did it. Bill Gates did it, Mark mm -hmm. Zuckerberg did it, all these dropouts, I don't know. Yeah, but they, they had companies that were going to make them billionaires. <laughs> mine, mine wasn't going to do that. So, so what, do you, what do you think I, I don't, kids I, these days should do? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy I graduated yeah, too, yeah. Um, but I'm not the CEO of Roku. Uh, what, do you, what do you advise for younger people these days who are entrepreneurial like you were and so many others might have been. And there's all this conversation about where your focus right. should be. Kind of what did you what did you learn from that? What did you mm -hmm. take from it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I, uh, I think that so you, there's I think related to that is you see a lot of these programs teaching uh, college kids how to raise money, like competitions, like Shark Tank kind of competitions. And my experience is investors do not give college kids money. Like <laughs> like you know they give money to uh, experienced executives who have ideas or 
college kids that have already built a business that, like you know, Mark Zuckerberg, that's got a run rate and is obviously going to make a lot of money. So, um, so I would say if you want to raise, so I'll, related is if you want to raise money, you need to do one of those two things. Like you need to have experience, like go to college, get a get a job, you know, become a, you know, a middle level manager or executive at Facebook. Then you can go raise money or do it yourself. You know, either your technical or find a technical partner, build it get a bunch of customers, then you can raise money. But the path of just having an idea and not graduating from college is not going to raise money. So, um, yeah, so I think, I, I, you know, going to college and graduating is, is good. I, I, I don't think, if you are Mark Zuckerberg, you know, if you have a business that's got millions of customers, you can drop out of college. But if you haven't got that, it's probably not a good idea. And then, then you did your version of the Grapes of Wrath and you, you, you moved from, Texas, Oklahoma area, out to California. What, what was what was your uh, mindset at the time? What year was it when you're? 1990. 1990. Yeah. Uh, it's still kind of early. In yes, PCs. Yeah. PC revolution. And even what the PC is becoming. I mean, 1993 was Apple was hot in 1990. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jobs well, was digital audio was getting hot. That's my, yeah. that was what my, my company did was uh, we did an internet, you know. Um, so I, I think, you know, well, first of all, uh, when I, I remember in 1989, I was watching TV and there was a big earth, I was in Texas in college, and there was this big earthquake in California uh, in 1989. The freeways fell down. Loma Prieta. Loma Prieta, exactly. All my coworkers at the Mercury News were talking about that for years and years after that. Right, so I remember watching that on TV going, wow, I, I would never move to California. That's crazy. And then next year, I, I realized, well, that's where all the computer guys are. So I moved to California. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I was a little bit out of the mainstream doing my Amiga digital audio stuff, um, but it was a very profitable business. It did it did really good for me. Um, it was based on the Commodore Amiga, which um, you, most people don't haven't heard of because they went out of business. Right. Uh, so they went out of business in '95. So that business was doing really well. I moved out in '90 and, and built it up. We were we were the leader in, back then in desktop video audio for desktop video. Um, but then Commodore went out of business, uh, and I decided, well, I could switch to PCs and do this, or kind of take a reset. Or this internet stuff is getting really popular. Maybe I should do internet software. So I decided to do that. So I essentially shut that company down, took the money I'd made, started an internet authoring software company, and within nine months it got bought by Micromedia for thirty-five million dollars. So it was, it was. That's when I realized, oh well, picking the right market is kind of important. Why were you? so entrepreneurial at this point. Why weren't you playing it safer? Um, there weren't so many examples at that time. I mean, there were a few, but so many examples of entrepreneurs who had made it big, say, outside of gaming and, you know, Apple and... Bill Gates. You know, yeah. I mean, there was Bill Gates. In 1990, though, I mean, it wasn't even as big as it was going to get. Um, why didn't you go work for HP or... I don't know. I don't know. I just never thought about it. I like I like I like doing my own thing. It's hard to answer that question. I did I did apply. You know, when you graduate from college, they had all the interviews come in. They do interviews. I did interviews. I didn't get any job offers. So ah. I interviewed at um, Space Systems Laurel. I think I interviewed at the wrong places. <laughs> I probably should have interviewed at Apple or Microsoft or something. But you, it seems like you had this independent streak where you were willing to 
let the yeah, things I mean, that other people expected you to do go for a while and focus on something you were passionate about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the, I, there was any expectations for me to do anything. I mean, I was the first person in my family to go to college, to university anyway. Um, so, uh, and the thing about being a college kid is you've got nothing to lose. I mean, you're not making any money. So, <laughs> starting your own company seems like it seems good. Like, it's not like, um, you know, you've got a really well-paying job that you've been doing for five or ten years and you've got a big salary and if you start a company you could lose that, so. Hmm. What have you learned about leadership and culture and how that rises out of a founder? I've talked to a lot of CEOs, a lot of founders, all kinds of personalities, all kinds of approaches. Mm -hmm. How has yours affected the way Roku has grown up? Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to be successful as a CEO. I've discovered, um, you know, you don't have, you can be a nice guy, you can be a jerk. I mean, that's I, I don't think it's actually success is not really correlated to that. Um, Apparently not. Is that because I've <laughs> there's a lot of nice guys and a lot of jerks yeah. who are who made a lot of money. Exactly. So I don't think it's not that's not unfortunately it's not correlated to that. Um, you know, my uh, what I, I think in a technology company. Uh, you, you have to be a technical, a technical CEO to be successful. Like I think you really have to have an engineering background. I mean, Steve Jobs I think was the exception. But That's you, where I was going to go. But yeah. even, even Steve Jobs, you know, like his early jobs were like soldering and stuff. Like he was really interested in it. But, but, um, but, but generally, I think to run a technology company, you know, you, you need a technology background, and then you have to have, then you have to have a desire to 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 learn business as well, or, or be, be a good general manager. Um, you know, the key characteristics of Roku, I think, are, you know, hiring great people that are good at their job, empowering them to make their own decisions, you know, giving them the context they need to be able to make good decisions, um, having a good strategy, you know, that everyone understands and is focused on, uh, those kinds of things. How do you think these streaming call them streaming wars, because it seems like we call everything wars, but these different maneuverings and wrestlings are going to turn out. I, I feel like there was this unbundling that was the premise behind a lot of streaming. Hey, look how much our parent company, Comcast, is charging, trying to get you triple play, quadruple play, all the plays. Um, let's break this down and get you what you really want. But then, to some degree, there seems to be this rebundling happening. Like Google's got Google... Uh, YouTube music that's coming out now, but then they've also got YouTube premium. For a little more, you get these special features on video as well. It seems like these things are coming back together in different bundles, trying to entice people to pay more for things that they might want less after all. How, how's it going to shake out? Yeah, I mean, even Netflix is a bundle. If you think about it, it's a bundle of, you get a lot of content bundled together for a pretty great price. So. Uh, people, consumers like bundling. They like they like the idea of like paying one price, getting unlimited access to a bunch of stuff. Uh, they want fries with that. I mean, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they. But I think what happened is uh, in the American pay TV business, there was just over bundling. Like the bundles got too big, the they got the bills got too expensive, um, and it, suddenly the internet brings you know alternate ways to get access to content with much bigger. Comp much broader competition. So I think there'll still be bundling, it's just that they'll be less expensive and there'll be a lot more options and a lot more competition, um, which will give consumers a lot more, you know, a lot more choice. Some people say we're in a golden age of television now, just in terms of the quality of writing, the amount of funding that's going into 
uh, content ideas, the fact that technology allows companies to target consumers in ways that were difficult before, so I guess it's easier to make money off of a great idea that appeals to a niche as opposed to trying to make a show for everybody. How right. long do you expect that to last? These things seem to go in cycles. Eventually, is the money going to dry up for all these great ideas? Well, I think, I think there's two answers. One is TV. I do think we're in a golden age of TV, and TV is getting better. And you can think of things like, like serial dramas you know, as almost like you know, 20 hour movies. I mean, they're, uh, and, the, and, there's, and again, there's competition for viewers now, uh, and that is driving you know, better quality. There's also, like you said, I think there's, uh, because you can reach a, a, a global audience, you can build shows that are more niche but still get a lot of viewers. So I think that's all true. Um, but I do think also there's, there's a lot of SVOD services launching. Uh, there's more SVOD services launching than there probably are, is dollars to support. So streaming I, video on demand? Yeah, sorry, streaming video services. Yeah, mm -hmm. everyone's trying to build the ne next Netflix. And I think that there's not, enough, um, there's not enough dollars for that because, again, consumers want to save money with streaming. So there will be, there will be a shakeout. But there is a permanent state of competition now in the TV world that didn't exist, more competition that didn't exist before, and I think that will, um, that will just bring more choice. I, I also think you're getting, like if you look at like Netflix, you know, they have shows that were produced in Hollywood, but they also, I'm watching a show on Netflix called 3% right now, which is, I think is produced in Brazil, mm. and, it's, and it's dubbed. So, you know, as these, as these networks, as these services go global, you can tap into content from all around the world. Uh, I, I love to hear stories, like little case studies, niche content that doesn't necessarily get headlines, mainstream attention. Mm -hmm. What's caught your eye on Roku that most people would have no clue about, but has maybe been a success story of, of niche content? Hmm. Uh, well, BritBox, I don't know how, is, is doing, is something I like to watch. It's British TV, so. Back to your roots a little bit. Uh, yep, exactly, <laughs> back to my roots. Um, what is that? Uh, what's Britbox? Yeah, it's uh, it's British television. It's uh, uh, a few of the networks got together and bundled their shows and produced an SVOD service for the. It's a good example of what we were saying before, where you can take streaming gives you access to the entire country, so they can take and there's ex, there's you know a, say a show for British expats wouldn't do well in any particular market because there's not enough of them. But when you can aggregate the entire country and deliver a service just for British expats, but you're delivering it for all British people in the entire country, then it becomes profitable. So um, I think that's a good example of that. New technology makes room for new business models, and Anthony Wood is always changing things up. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me one of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. And follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews. You can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox. Go to LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Search for John Fort and follow me. Hey, just a few days ago, we did a live episode on travel hacks because summer's around the corner and it blew my mind. We had the, the points guy, we have the editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Traveler. So some high-end advice, some practical advice. Hey, I even signed up for a new credit card 
just based on the point guy's advice. And this is, that's not an ad or anything. I'm not telling you which credit card, but if you listen to the episode, you'll get some good pointers. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.